Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. We're coming to you from Tiruciar in Sydney on Gadigal lands of the Euro Nation. I'm Anthony Dockwell. This program is made possible by the assistance of the UTS Business School. This week, we have a recent panel discussion that was given at the University of Technology Sydney titled Aging with Dignity, Imagining the Future of Aged Care Services in Australia. The talk features a number of speakers talking about the economic and social challenges we face as a country, but also as individuals in a country with an aging population. Discussion was moderated by Nicole Sutton from the UTS Business School. Hi. My name is Nicole. Uh, I am a senior lecturer here in the UTS Business School and we're here with a panel called Aging in Dignity. Of course, before I begin, I would like to acknowledge that we are meeting here on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Uh, And especially today, I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge them as the traditional custodians uh, of this land. So, ensuring we have appropriate care for older Australians is perhaps one of the most significant challenges that we will face in our society here in Australia over the coming decades. Now, aged care right now is very loud. Aged care right now is provided to more than 1.3 million people across this country. And with our ageing population, that number is going to grow. Today, we're joined by an expert, some experts from the UTS Aging Research Collaborative, what we call UARC. Uh, and they're going to uh, talking about ageing with dignity and particularly thinking about the future of aged care services in Australia. Now, reflective of UARC's, that's us, our transdisciplinary focus, we're really lucky to have experts from all across the university. So I'm here from the business school, but we have Philippa Carmanella from... from uh, the Design, Architecture and Building, yep, Theresa Soames from Law and Deborah De Bono from Health. Now, I've got some questions for the panellists, but we will have some time for Q&A at the end uh, and I'll come to you. I'll keep an eye on the clock. Okay, so to start us off, if we're going to talk about the future of aged care in Australia, we know that predominantly this is going to happen with care provided to people in their own home. Although there's a lot of attention on residential aged care or nursing homes, out of that 1.3 million people who are receiving aged care services right now, more than a million of them are receiving them either in their own home or in their community. So I'm going to start with you, Pip, about the built environment. So in that context, what role does housing play, especially its design, in supporting Australians to receive quality care at home? Thanks, Nicole. Um... Yeah, so a lot of my research has really been about understanding that relationship between the role of design and built environment and our independence, our autonomy and agency, but also how is care provided safely and efficiently within um, a range of environments, but predominantly people's homes. So as Nicole mentioned, as policy is really shifting towards receiving care in our own homes as we get older, um, There's no question that the design of those homes is going to influence the amount of care that we need and when we need it in our lives and also how a care labour workforce provides support in that home for us. Um, And that happens at a range of scales. So a lot of my work has shown how important the bathroom, for example, is in um, maintaining independence um, and in also ensuring that care can be received safely. Um, There's that aspect that I can speak 
to quite a bit of detail around all around different aspects of the home, from the entrance and exits to the design of gardens and even to that connectivity of our housing to our streetscape. Um, and we might want to unpack that a little bit more. But there's also the fact that in order to receive care in your own home, you have to have a house, you have to have a home to accept that care. And even on the weekend, I was speaking with uh, quite a large home care provider asking about some of the examples of people who don't have secure and stable housing. How are people receiving aged care in those contexts? So we had cases of one um, uh, older la uh, lady who, um, who was splitting where she was living across her three children and that the care provider had to do Monday and Tuesday in one house, Wednesday and Thursday in another and the weekend in another. It, provided, it created a lot of complexity. Um, but as well as that, we talked about um, the fact that most of the housing that we're living in is, um, it's not this brand new, fabulously designed, accessible and inclusive, um, uh, kind of compliant with guidelines, um, and that going into a person's house um, that is older, might not be maintained, might not be well designed, has quite significant implications for not only the safety and well-being of the workforce, um, and also the safety and well-being of the person receiving support, but the efficiency of those services that are being provided. Um, so, yes, so that, that's kind of... Could, just to follow up, could you give us an indication of the sense of you know, how... Do you have a sense of how adequate most people's homes are for them to be able to receive good aged care services or...? Um, there's a couple of ways we've looked at it. So, uh, look, about five or six years ago, I did some research where we tried to look at well, how much housing in Australia is new housing. Mm. doesn't necessarily mean it's the best design, but how much housing is new housing? And at that, that, at that time, it was about 1.25% per annum of housing was new housing, which leaves a lot that's older. Mm. Um, and we also have a little bit of a complexity, particularly in New South Wales, where... Um, uh, we have the uh, National Construction Code not actually taking up our livable housing guidelines, which means that the new housing that's being is built is not necessarily accessible as well. So it's a very, very small proportion that is accessible. And um, for anyone who's been looking for accommodation that is accessible, whether it's a person with disability or an older person who is aware of the importance of level entry and aware of the importance of a good you know, well-designed bathroom, for example, and good location. We'll talk about how difficult it is to find accessible apartments because what's happening is um, in a lot of new developments, there's a small proportion that does have to be compliant with the livable housing guidelines, but they only have to really be adaptable, often only have to be adaptable, so they're not put onto the market as, um, as accessible apartments, so they get absorbed into the main... Um, kind of market or mm. stock, and then don't actually get sh uh, the pe people who actually need them don't actually get to um, to benefit from mm. them. Mm. And so, so if we open up this kind of topic around, okay, so aging in people's homes, um, Pip spoke a little bit about some of the risks and from a health and safety point of view. But um, I might I might come to you, Deb, about from a workforce perspective. How well are we set up in terms of, in Australia, having a workforce that's ready and able in terms of the numbers, in terms of the skills, in being able to meet that demand for services uh, in people's own homes? So thank you, Nicole, and there's one answer to that. We're not very well set up okay. at all. Um, and I think, to, you know, just to Pip's point, just to give an illustrative example, I guess, um, my parents 
both have aged care in the home um, and when they bought their unit, my mum at the time, we thought she was crazy because we thought, why would you not have a view, um, would only buy an apartment on the ground floor. And the only reason they are still in their home is because they have a unit on the ground floor. And it's really interesting because then when you start to think, I'm getting a bit older and we're about to downsize to a unit and we're moving into a unit that doesn't have a lift and has, you know, isn't. So it's those kind of practical things. And I guess thinking about the workforce, you know, you've got to have a workforce then that can get up and down stairs as well. You've got to have a workforce. And as Pip said, you know, often these homes are old. I think of, uh, I go straight to my parents and think, you know, as you get older, you don't see the mess as much. Your eyes don't kind of pick it up as much. And there's a lot more clutter that they're trying to work around. Um, things like communication skills, consistency of the workforce. I mean, imagine and if it was you and you had someone different coming into your home every single day, to a stranger often to shower you, um, to attend to those really personal needs, a lot of people will then say, no, I don't want it. So, you know, there's having the consistent workforce, so enough mm. people, people who are, I like to say, not trained but educated because I think if you train, it's just about learning skills without knowing what goes on behind it. But the, that workforce also doesn't know what they're going to find when they get to into somebody's home. So my parents both live with uh, my brother who's got an intellectual disability. He's quite, you know, he's older. So those workers that are going in to look after my parents, they don't know what they're going to find, you know, what sort of mood my brother might be in. So I don't know if I've answered your question, but I think there are lots and lots of skills and uh, the workforce will be... I guess, um, able to deliver care for people in a dignified way or to maintain their dignity when we remember that these are people who are receiving that, that care. They're not objects that are just anyone will do. They just need to have, a, you know, their bodies washed and their shopping done. And I guess that's the other point. Sorry, I could ramble about this all day. But um, is thinking about well, what, are, what are the services that are delivered? So, you know, there are all those different levels of package. So, you know, um, all the way up to, to four. Some people just need their shopping done. Some people need the company. Some people need to have um, toileting or showering or, you know, meals prepared. So, there are a whole range of skills um, that, that people need to be able to deliver that care in the home. And the other thing is that often these people, the people that are going in to deliver care may not, they've not had a, a kind of an education or qualification in this necessarily and they're going in and they're the ones that will pick up, you know, especially if it's a consistent workforce, she's a little bit more confused than she was yesterday or um, I can see actually that over the last week he's lost quite a bit of weight. Mm. I wonder what's going on. But then having the skills to be able to... Because mm, they're really, really important touch points. Yeah, yeah. So can we look at it from a, from a legal perspective, Teresa? Yeah, I just wanted to pick up on something that Pip was talking about earlier when you said that, you know, to age in your home, you have to have a home to age in. And that's really important because we do tend to default to the assumption that everyone has this home that can then be adapted and things like that. So one of the... Um, if you can think about all the different types of accommodation that people might be in from their own home to, say, rental properties um, it, to, to um, um, you know, caravans and things like that to some, to some homeless people you know, or couch surfing and things like that. So if you're living in rental accommodation, 
your security of tenure is obviously not, not as good as if you're in your own home. And we found that people will be reluctant to actually ask for um, changes in the home to, to adapt to their ageing situation because they're worried about their security of tenure. They're worried about being kicked out of their home. And, and that's something that's really um, uh, puts people in a terribly vulnerable situation because it's almost like they're complicit in the, the lack of care mm. that's, that's actually going on because they're worried about what's going to happen to them. Mm. Okay. Um, so, go ahead. You were going to ask another question. I was going to ask I another question. I just went completely off track. No, 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 no. <laughs> I think that's really helpful. I mean, I was just, uh, I, I guess I probably just wanted to extend on the understanding from a legal perspective, and I think you've just done a really good job, about what what risks that being in, in a... If, are emerging from a legal perspective. I mean, I'm thinking about work, worker health and safety. Well, we yeah, we we can draw an analogy really with um, you know with COVID when we were all working from home and you know the the whole uh, workplace health and safety was well you know do you have an ergonomic chair and do you do all, all these sort of concerns that you could actually be injured in your home while you were working. So it's the same sorts of things really. Mm. It's um, trying to be able to keep that sort of consistency with the um, uh, keeping people safe, but thinking about all the different contingencies that can happen as well. Mm. Um, and, yeah, it, 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 um, it's fraught. Yeah, <laughs> <is what> I... <laughs> yeah and, and how should we... I mean, I've, I've said this word a couple of times, but I've said this word risk, right? Uh, and I think... I, I know you guys know a lot about this term and we've spent a lot of time talking about it, but what are some of the problems with how we think about risk in relation to older people, and what are some of the ways that our thinking and our language needs to change? Yes, well, I think we've always had a fairly paternalistic view um, and very um, uh, low risk, so decisions tend to be made um, to prevent risk. And then we've probably heard of the, the phrase, the dignity of risk. Yep. Um, and, and this is all tied in with... Um, but in, case, yeah. in, in case people haven't heard about dignity of risk... Dignity of risk is basically... It's tied into um, autonomous decision-making, allowing people to say... Um, you might say... Again, I'll give my own family as, a, as an example. My parents-in-law, who desperately wanted to stay in their own home, they wanted to stay there... Um, uh, but certain members of the family said it was simply too dangerous and they were to go into an aged care place um, and they were dead within a year. And they, they, they were so unhappy, um, complicated by the fact that um, my mother-in-law had dementia and so my father-in-law was actually in a locked dementia ward and he mm. didn't have dementia. So they were prepared to stay at home and actually... You know, there were lots of trip hazards and things like that, but I felt that that was something that could be managed and that they would have been happier living with that risk that perhaps they, they may have fallen or, or, or something like that, but they were happier where they were. So it's allowing people to make decisions, autonomous decisions, knowing um, the risks that are involved and making those decisions themselves. Mm. And to what extent do you think the way in which the aged age care services are now set up and support services are up, do they recognise dignity of risk? Or do, do, you're, you've got a smile on your face. 
I'll let you have a go and I'm then going to pass to you. They're starting to and, and I don't know, you may disagree with me here, I think it's starting more, uh, maybe I'm completely wrong, but start, I think the legal side are actually recognising it. I think from a healthcare perspective um, that maybe that needs to catch up, but this is, you know, the... the um, uh, the New Age Care Act is bringing in sort of a human rights approach and the autonomy and dignity of the person, um, allowing them to make decisions and things like that. So it's coming. Mm. Um, the uh, legal foundation is coming. Okay, mm. I'll throw to you. From a health services point of view, are the health services designed to recognise the, the dignity of risk and the different the spectrum of risks there? I think increasingly they are. I think as a society, though, I think the change needs to come from us as a whole because I think while, you know, when we think about COVID and the ex incredible extremes that we went to in COVID and, you know, lockdown aged care facilities, uh, you know, and at the beginning when there wasn't immunisation, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not kind of preaching either way, but I think that until we as a society see older people as human beings and individuals, I think we will continue to be worried about what's going to happen on my watch if mm. there is an incident. So I think, and I, this is a Deborah de Bono view, this is not necessarily, I'm not reflecting anybody else, but I do think um, one of the, the problems is the paternalism. Mm. And as a society, we, we, we kind of move, old people become invisible. And, and I didn't believe that. My mum said it to me, you know. And then I went shopping with her and it was David Jones. I mean, my mum is the perfect customer for David <laughs> yeah. Jones, right? A loyal customer. A loyal. <laughs> the, um, the woman who was probably my age, who was attending to my mum, could not look at my mum and answer her. So she kept saying to me, what does your mother want? I'm like, my mother is here and she's completely compass and it's mm -hmm. her money. And so... But she just couldn't do it. And I, it was the first time I kind of actually thought, yes, they become invisible. Mm. And with that invisibility, I think does come more and more paternalism. Mm. And I, I think on that risk, I mean, the, um, the sort of overarching um, legal um, uh, duty of care mm. um, has been there and sort of hanging over... What does it say? It sounds very negative, hanging over people's head. But the duty of care, and the duty of care is that you have a duty um, that if you see a foreseeable risk to prevent that risk. So you have a duty to other people. We all have a duty of care, but in the medical health um, arena, if you like, that that's the overarching paradigm. Mm. Um, and the duty of care has often been used um, to, to, in a lot of ways, um, breach people's human rights as well, but to say, you know, Restrictive practices is a, is a result. So restrictive practices meaning um, any sort of restraint, be it chemical, mechanical, um, uh, what are they, like physical, locked, wards. locked yeah. wards and things like that. So that's a, a restrictive practice. So that has been justified on the basis of the legal duty of care. I mm. see a foreseeable risk. I will stop that by doing that. Now, interestingly, in the new aged care. Mm, yeah, tell me more. Like, <laughs> the so new aged care act. Again, just to fill in the context, we have a, there's a lot of regulatory things happening mm. right now. Uh, one of the big, the big pieces, we're getting a new aged care act next year. Yes. So, yeah. And the new aged care act is a complete change. It makes a, um, the, the, the principle is that it's person focused. It's, it, it looks at the human rights of the, of the person that's being cared for. And that for, from, from that, is all the, 
the responsibilities, the legal frameworks and things like that. Now, there's a new duty of care, which is very interesting because it, it, it talks about the duty of care, but it means that the carer not only has to um, assess that foreseeable risk, but weigh that uh, with the, um, the dignity of risk of the person. Mm. So if, if, if they can see a risk, but then the person is willing to take that risk, they have to weigh that. Mm. Now, I'm not a taught lawyer um, as such, but that is very interesting to me only from the perspective of it adds another layer for the carer to actually... Mm. To, and, and having these people fulfil their responsibilities, um, particularly when they are legally um, bound, you know, by the Act, and if they, if they breach it, um, there's going to be consequences. Now, it does say in the duty that it's only very egregious breaches mm. that are going to be... But you're, it's a much more complex much weighing more complex. up uh, than just a strict duty of care. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it adds another layer mm. because then you've got to actually say, okay, well, what does this person want? Am I going to... Mm. If, I'm, if, if someone is going to the bathroom um, and, and, and they're at risk, there's a foreseeable risk that, you know, that they need help and they don't want help, am I going to let them do that and mm. take that risk that if they fall over and injure mm. themselves which you see is yeah. foreseeable, it, it, it puts a lot back on the carer. Yeah. That's not to say it's a bad thing because I think we can deal with those sorts of issues, you know, the, 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 yeah. um, the interpretation of hu human rights are very at, at a high level of abstraction, if you like, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, treating someone with dignity. Um, uh, we can always see, again, very egregious breaches of human rights um, but it's not black and white. There's that liminal space that we, we you know, have I done the right thing? And that duty of care is yet another yeah. um, aspect to that. Um, again, it's hard, yeah. but it's... it's Probably in the... But it sounds like it's along the right directions where we started that kind of conversation. Yes. Yeah. You, you wanted to jump in there. I did, because <clears throat> a lot of work that I do is working with people with dementia and working with people with intellectual disability how prepared of our care and labour workforce to make those decisions um, where capacity may be legally in question. Um, mm. And Exactly. And, <laughs> and that was something I was, I was going to say about that because what we've got is the ideal on one side. We've yep. got the Act. We've got, um, you know, there's a lot of work that's gone through the Aged Care Royal Commission and, and, and drafting this legislation and consulting processes and things like that. So we've got the ideal to work toward. We have a problem with supply of carers. Um, and so what we're doing is to saying to a, a very... Um, diminished workforce, here are all these responsibilities. So there's an there's a obligation, really, to educate people. Mm. Um, the, the problem is, is that um, aged care is not a vote winner, okay? So it's actually quite difficult mm. to, um, to, to... Now. Yeah, <laughs> now. But the, yeah. the aged, aged people tend to be very othered. Um, yeah, which so, is what, what, what was Deb was saying before mm, as well. Yeah, yeah. very othered. So, you know, when you, when you think about sort of, you know, where resources are going and things like that, there's an under, yeah. what do you call it, underpinning of ageism, you know, boomers, yeah. you're responsible for this, you're not giving back to society, mm. you're dragging all the resources, that sort of attitude. Yeah. So we've got this 
yep. weird dichotomy where we're saying, this is what we want. This is really important, but it's going to cost. We've got no one to do it. It's going to cost yeah. a lot of money. <laughs> I have a yep. feeling that the consequences, and even Deb, you mentioned this, is that we're going to have a lot of unmet care need in the yeah. care. I think there is already. Yep. But I think even as we push more and more towards home care, yep. for all the very reasons that you mentioned, Deb, that people can very quickly say no. I, I mean, people don't engage with yep. the um, aged care sector until they absolutely need it. Yeah, okay. And I think that's going to get pushed out. Mm. So I'm, I'm mindful of time, but uh, there was also a case, a case of in discussion on the weekend where... Um, <clears throat> where older people are not... They don't have the money to fix their housing or adapt their housing to a level where aged care is considered safe to be delivered, so it mm. just doesn't get delivered. Mm, mm. So I, I want to change tack a little bit and talk about the... We're going to stay on the workers because they're clearly really, really, really important. <laughs> can I just say one thing, Nicole? Can Absolutely. I interrupt you? Yes, you can interrupt yeah, Just <laughs> I always find it amazing. You guys were you're like, this is not going to be a dynamic panel. I'm like... <laughs> I always find it amazing that, you know, we other ageing, whereas with any, you know, privilege, we're all going to be there. Yeah. Like, it's just such a short-sighted thing, isn't it? Sorry. Yeah. It's incredibly yes. short-sighted. Yeah. It's incredibly short-sighted. Yeah. But it, it, it is – that's what I mean by the other, that, you know, if we're lucky, that is us. Yes. Um, but which, which hopefully could then be a vote winner. I mean, yeah, maybe, well, that's, right. maybe that's the pitch. <laughs> yeah. Maybe that's the pitch. This is going to be you. You should care about it. I mean, that's what I tell my students when I'm saying, who's paying for aged care? Taxpayers. Who are taxpayers? Yeah. You. <laughs> I, 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 but I do want to change tack and talk a little bit about aged care homes, residential aged care homes. And I'll, I'll stay focused on the workforce issues. Now, in, you know, in the media, in policy documents, there's been a lot of focus about registered nurses uh, and personal care workers, direct care workers, so the people who are providing care. And, and there's been some changes now that's really lifted the numbers of or at least the staff time provided in terms of that clinical, personal care. But that, they're not the only people that make up the kind of the care workforce and the people within a residential aged care home. How, who are other people that might be involved in delivering or providing care services to older people and how important are they in aged care homes? I've just given you that. <laughs> Do you want to give me the box as well? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Up you go. Yeah. Um, well, let's just put it to the audience. How many of you would like to live in a dirty aged care facility? <laughs> That's a resounding no. That's no. Yeah. So, for example, the cleaners. Um, you know, how instrumental, and we saw in COVID, um, a lot of my research is done in acute acute care, the importance of the, the cleaning stuff was like brought to the front and central. Um, so people like the cleaners, people like people die in aged care facilities from malnutrition. So what about the dietitians? What about the people delivering the meals? What about the, the maintenance? You know, we say it's a home and if we're in our home together, we all work together and we all kind of take part. And I, you know, because you've, I've, <laughs> This. But I, I think the ancillary staff in not only in acute care but also in residential aged care facilities are an incredible resource that we often don't focus on. They are the ones that will often see, you know, the maintenance person who's in the gardener. Yeah, yeah, the yeah. gardener. Who, who sees, again, and I'll go back to that 
being a source of information or the person who continuously collects the trays after the meals and sees that Mrs Smith is not eating as much as she was and they're the ones that have, you know, the incredible wealth of information mm. but I don't think there's enough focus on... Mm. on so, so what would require... Why aren't we focused on the rest of these staff? Well, probably. I don't know. I, I would go back to the... Um, well, I say this when I, every time I want to get a grant about patient safety and ancillary stuff. It's not a sexy topic. The cleaners aren't sexy. Whereas, you know, the... Whereas those RNs... Oh, well, I was an RN as well. <laughs> but, I think, but I think, again, it comes to this overriding thing that it's, it's all about care. It's all about, you know, it's, it's yeah. all about health care and things yeah. like that. So, you, you know, that's the priority. We need to open our need thinking open in terms out. about yeah. what... And this is the diversity of what people need in terms of care and support. Yes. It's not just clinical care. It's much broader than that and it's going to require diversity of skills to deliver yeah. that. Yeah. So they need to have things like gardens to walk yeah. in. They need to have clean places. It's not just a matter of, of, of toileting and feeding yeah. and cleaning. Yeah. That, that, that is a very one-dimensional uh, mm. view of a, an older person in an aged yeah. care facility. Mm. I thought there was a question. <laughs> we will get to questions soon. So, yeah, wonderful. Um, I guess, I, I mean, part of the elephant in the room, and it's perhaps becoming talked about a little bit more, is that, and since the Royal Commission, very few people want to go to an aged care home. I mean, I, I, I don't think this is an active choice. People go, yes, I can't wait to go off to a nursing home. Fantastic. Um, uh, so, why is that and what do we need to do to make them a place that are less feared uh, and more, uh, uh, more palatable, more approachable, more acceptable for older people who, who do have to go there? Oh, very quickly. Um, mm -hmm. I do a lot of work across both aged care and uh, um, in the disability sector. You can't build institutions, institutional care settings in uh, for people with disability in the disability sector. So what, what do you mean by that? Can't build... We could, um, so really, residential aged care facilities are a form of institutional congregate care. Mm -hmm. um, and that's... With wards and long corridors and... and many, many people, you know, many people. So the aged care sector, I think, has, can learn from the disability sector in terms of built environments to mm. think about. And, it, and it's starting to do that. There are a lot of changes around smaller household models of care. Deb and I have done some work on household models of care. Um, uh, but that's not the only... I mean, it's not just building and designing smaller settings and more flexible settings. Mm. It's about um, removing institutional practices from care. Because ultimately... You want to have a shower when you want to have a shower and you want to have your meal when you want to have your meal and you want to be able to choose food and have mm -hmm. good food. And these are all of the things that people who historically have lived in residential um, aged care have had to forfeit and give up as mm -hmm. a result of moving out of their own home. Those decisions even around the types of cleaning products that are used, um, you know, around us or... You know, anyway, I'll yeah. open the floor a bit. Yeah. So, again, it comes back to choice. <laughs> Choice. It comes back to choice and staffing. <laughs> choice and staffing. And I think attitude. Okay. I, like I really think that um, as a society like we, we need to remove – like we really need to fight hard against ageism and the idea that you go into a residential aged care facility when it's the end of your time. 
that's mm. the end. And there are, as Philippa said, that there are, um, we visited an absolutely beautiful, mm. beautiful uh, residential aged care facility for people with dementia and it's a home. It's just a house. And the centre of the house is the kitchen. And, um, you know, some of the people who are residents there, their dementia is so advanced that they, they can't feed themselves. They've mm. forgotten how to do that. This, it was, it was beautiful. It was nestled, you know, it was across from a school. It was nestled in a suburb. It was a house. It was a home. Um, so, yeah. yeah, thinking. The other thing is about how we fund that. Yes. Like how do we fund? I, I'm sitting here from the business perspective <laughs> and I'm thinking, this sounds lovely, but how are we going to pay for this? Um, but I quite like the idea of that sort of incorporation, isn't it? As instead of having, again, that sort of removing and othering and the, this, is, this is the community where we live mm. and then at a certain time you just put over there. Yeah. You just put yeah. – so quite that, that idea of the incorporation yep. and for people to be able to um, – yeah, except, I mean, a, a lot of the time people, older people will move in with their children mm. um, because to, to prevent going into aged care home. Now, that, that's a whole other issue of, of itself, but um, there is a lot of advantage to that idea of having that sort of um, vertical... Yeah, multi-generational. Um, multi-generational yeah. living because you're, you're not just exposed to people of your own age... You, you do get that sort of cross-section there. So I think there are a lot of advantages to that. Yeah. Legally a lot of disadvantages, but we won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> so in a moment I'm going to open up the floor for questions that you might have for the panel and you can pick a panellist or you can suggest to them all. Um, I love how I've just made you the panel and me step aside. <laughs> uh, big business questions. Oh, yeah, yeah sure. If any business questions, you can send them uh, to me. Um uh, I guess uh, while you're thinking of your questions, I, I've, I just want to change tack again one more time because we are here uh, in a university and we do research and we do re we're part of a research collaborative uh, around ageing. Uh, and I guess in the spirit of some of the discussions we've already had today, we hear about, you know, co-design um, and co-design in research uh, and the importance of co-design. I, I just wanted to open up well, what is it and why is it important and, you know, how can it be done badly and how can it be done really well? And I know each of you had different experiences of that. Um, <laughs> you'll each have a turn and then, yeah. So Dev do you and want I, to start? Dev and I do a lot of this work and have for a number of years, haven't we? We're really understanding, uh, well, how... Paula used the term co-design has been historically and, and also in framing what we see as what it truly inclusive practice is when it comes to research, when it comes to shared decision making, mm. whether it be about the types of um, kind of healthcare and support being provided or around the design of built environments. Mm. So can you give me an example of a bad definition or a bad... Oh, like, help me out here. Or like... So maybe... When it's done poorly? So when... When I think the term is misapplied okay, that's a good would be when you might, for example, develop a, an intervention, a strategy, a model of care or something, and then you go to the recipients and ask them what they think. That's not co-design. That's you've designed after, it. After the fact. <laughs> after, the, after, after the fact consultation. That's right. Feedback. That's feedback. It's not actually... Okay, so, when, so to flip it then, um, what... What does co-design actually look like when it's done properly? So I think if you take it to the absolute extreme when it's done really, really well, we as researchers provide the research expertise, 
We don't necessarily provide the research questions. So we... So an older person, a participant, would actually... They, they come up with the research priorities themselves. Yeah, yeah. Or, or it may be um, the organisation yep. um, that comes up with it. So that we are offering our expertise more in terms of, I guess, research skills, um, you know, that kind of thing. But so, that, so really well done co-design would... The ideas would be generated from... The, mm. you know, the, the questions, I guess. Yeah, yeah. The, what is Stakeholders, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And, and a lot of it is around the project structure. So okay. our mm. project structures have absolutely transformed in the oh, past yeah. six or seven years. So we're employing people with lived experience as core members, core research members of the team based on that expertise. We're developing advisory and steering committees at every single level. And also we're starting to be able to access funding, as Deb said, before we even think of the project to work out what the project is. Mm. Um, working with community mm -hmm. uh, and also at every step of the way properly recompensing and valuing people. Mm -hmm. Oh, because they're, they're not just participants, they're actually paid research right. yeah, members. Yeah. 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 Wonderful. So they bring expertise that we don't have. Mm. So lived experience expertise that... Yep. yep, absolutely. So you can see from that problem that I was talking about with the duty of care and, mm. and how... So you could see how you could have a, a, a co-design project with carers themselves and health experts and lawyers to be able to say, okay, what actually happens on the ground? How, how would you respond to this situation? And then you'd be able to feed that back through the sort of legal analysis to say, well, because quite often when you introduce laws, you think, oh, this is a great idea, but you don't see all the un unintended consequences that can mm. happen because of those laws. Mm. So that sort of co-design. That ex expertise, yes, lived the, experience expertise yeah, actually is really important. Yeah, and it works mm. very well. Mm. Wonderful. Okay, thank you. All right. Um, do we have any questions from the floor? Okay, and then we've got some microphones. We've got one here, and then we'll come over here. Go ahead. Hi, that was a super good talk. Um, I'm just a student from the that building. I do VizCom, and something that was really interesting about this talk was that there was a, um, obviously it's all to do with accessibility and ability, especially within an aging population. and something that we get taught a lot in the design school is this idea of like accessible and inclusive design where they're not, those are not the same thing. And one thing that I feel like wasn't spoken about here, which could be an interesting like leverage point to get people to actually pay for the services is that if you frame ability as access to convenience, I feel like a lot of people are really receptive to that. So especially with maybe disabled services, for example, it's like, an accessible table could just be a table that has rounded edges because someone with vision impairment might bump into it. But I feel like anyone would benefit from that because it always hurts if you walk into the corner of a table. And so I'm wondering, and it also goes back to how, um, sorry, I already forgot your name, but Deborah, yes, you spoke about um, social and cultural changes. I feel like maybe this idea of convenience, because that applies to everyone, it's in a robust and inclusive design. Does that often get talk talked a lot? in research practices. Yes, it does. And actually, I've got a challenge for you, particularly around ageing, you know, in terms of design and getting older, because um, in my PhD, I did work on home modifications, which is all around improving design um, and making it safer and, and more accessible and convenient. The problem is that having that forethought, knowing that you need it now. So I, I, what's my, ch my challenge is how to make grab rails and handrails and accessible bathroom design sexy so that people want it now and so that people see it as convenience 
now because people don't see it as convenience. People see it as, oh, institution. institutions have a lot to answer for. People see it as clinical, institutional bathroom design. So that is something I think that design and design thinking can play a really significant role in overcoming, overcoming that. Do you want to add quickly to that? I just wanted to. I just wanted to challenge you as well. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it's a feisty I, panel. No, no, but I don't know. I don't know if I heard correctly. Did you say I'm just a student? I want you to know that you are the most important person in the university. Sorry, <laughs> students are by far more important than anybody else, except the cleaners. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. I think we had a question over here. Uh, yes, hi. Um, I see aged care a bit like childcare or maybe even fruit picking in that taxpayers don't want to pay more. Maybe rich people can get beautiful luxury aged care homes, but for the majority of people it raises the question of if we don't have enough workers, Australian workers who don't want to work for low wage, uh, the importing of people from poorer countries um, who are then likely to be subject to abuse by their own race employers who take their passports and don't pay them and, and lock them up and so on. So, so for me, it's a question of how do you ensure quality whilst getting the delivery of the service? And uh, one of the comments, Australia has some of the strongest laws in the world and some of the weakest enforcement. So we can have lots of lovely laws, but if we don't actually have any enforcement of them, people putting putting people in jail if they're, if they're offending mm. contractors, uh, then it can be, look pretty weak. Mm. So, so if I can take your question in terms of how do we, on the one hand, improve the quality of the services, keeping in mind the constraints that we've been talking about here in terms of um, the workforce constraints, in terms of the financial constraints that you speak about as well, um, and, and you're suggesting perhaps it comes from a legal perspective. I'll let Teresa kind of have a go at that in a second. I think there's also a different way as well in the sense that um, people will pay for services that they want. People will pay for services that they choose, which I think uh, – and, and I think that has got to change uh, and it is changing. That being said, I think there's a role for taxpayers – um, given the society that we live in, to front up to help provide a safety net for those that don't have the financial capacity to choose. So that there's always that's the financial safety net there um, for people that are of, of low means. But for those that do have, you know, wealth, and we know that most people die with about the same level of assets that they had at retirement. So, you know, and that opens up a whole other can of worms as well. But uh, if people do have wealth um, and I think if the services are high quality and that they can be chosen, I think that is one of the keys to unlocking this kind of conundrum that we've been stuck in the past. I don't know. That, that's, this is me from a business point of view. Teresa, do you, do you see the role of law in terms of improving the quality? I mean... Well, yeah, I mean, the law is, is it's desperately trying to do that through this new Aged Care, Care Act. Act. And I think you, just, you actually tapped into what I was talking about earlier in that, I mean, when we talk about our workforce, it, it, it actually has implications for things like our immigration policy and things like that because, you know, and, and then we have these people that we, we can't just put them in and say, here are all your responsibilities, um, here's your legal framework... Um, you know, compliance framework and things like that, off you go. They have to be educated. And that costs money. 
that costs money. And that, and that gets back to that point I was making, that you, you need to make this... Um, governments, successive governments have to make this very clear that this is very important. It's not something that we can just, um, just assume people are going to be able to do because, again, if you've got a regulatory framework, a compliance framework, you're going to have penalties for non-compliance. Um, that's going to cost money. So institutions are going to have to educate their staff. They've got to have the staff. They've got to have the money to do it. And it, 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 it's, it's a, it is a huge issue. I, can't, I don't know what the answer is. <laughs> I guess we're working on it. Yes, we're yeah. working on it. Now, I do have an eye on the on the clock. So at this point, I'm, uh, and by the way, I imagine some of the panellists, I know we didn't get to everybody's question, but we'll be hanging around at the end, so really happy to have a chat afterwards. Um, but at this point, we'll probably, I'd just like to thank our panellists so much for all your insights and expertise and also thanking you for coming along to participate in this. You've been listening to a recent panel discussion called Aging with Dignity, Imagining the Future of Aged Care Services in Australia, held recently at UTS. And thanks for listening to the program. If you want to listen to this program again or share it with your friends, just go to touristcr.com or you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Think Business Futures will be back next week. I'm Anthony Dockrell. Thanks for listening.